gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, uh, very excited about today's episode for a bunch of reasons, which I will explain. You know, we got lots of nice feedback on the Steve and Jonah three-year catch-up on the Dispatch episode, but it not only lacked punditry, it lacked, it was so, in, it was so, uh, there's a special word for navel-gazing that I can't remember, that I felt I needed a sort of a, a corrective um, to go back to sort of... Uh, externally oriented um, cleanser. And so there's no better person to do that than uh, my, uh, my friend, colleague, and, uh, and well, my, and at least with one of my hats, my boss, uh, Yuval Levin. Yuval, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks very much for having me, Jonah. I didn't realize I was a cleanser, but I'm happy to do it. Well, you, were, you know, uh, at, uh, after bubbles burst, there's a flight to quality. That's what I, I, I consider you. <laughs> so, um, so one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is like you are basically my Edmund Burke guy. And um, uh, you've written two books basically on Burke, right? I mean, there was your dissertation and then there was The Great Debate. Am I missing one? That's right. Uh, no. So The Great Debate was basically a form of the dissertation. Uh, okay. Shorn of its uh, academic accoutrements so that it could be read by actual people. Um, but the dissertation was at the University of Chicago, basically about the, the Burke-Payne debate, and then uh, the Great Debate is a way of making that a little more accessible. So, uh, as I was telling you right before we went, went, went live, um, I had to give a talk at Grove City College uh, last night, and through some minor miscommunication, I thought I was supposed to be giving a talk about what is conservatism. And and this has been, as, as, I, as I've mentioned to you before, it's been percolating in my brain that maybe I should do a book about conservatism. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't mm -hmm. know. But like, um, I kind of did it, went deeper on it than I originally intended and really needed to. So uh, uh, in the actual talk last night, I basically had to leave the text and just wing it because people didn't want me to go really deep into sort of Oakshot and Burke and all of these things. But while I was doing my homework, one of the things that really sort of like, I guess I knew about and read about, because I've read biographies of, of Burke before, but um, never really focused on was Burke's argument in the trial of William Hastings, where yes, his Warren argument, Hastings. Warren Hastings, sorry, his argument wasn't entirely about the, well, there are two things that occur to me. One is this point, that in the, in the impeachment trial of Hastings, he was obviously against the abuses in uh, in the colonies by the by the East India Company, but part of, a major part of his argument wasn't the assault on the dignity of the of the of the Indians or the Bengalis or whatever, but on what it was doing to the character of the English rulers there, and I and it really hadn't dawned on me like what an important and subtle argument this is. Um, and it ties in, I'm sorry for the long lead in, I just want to table set. But the other thing is this thing, I, I recently uh, listened to the uh, Goldworthy biography of Julius Caesar. And one of the things I had not realized that was that in ancient Rome, they tried colonial governors all the time when they came back to Rome. Um, and it was considered an important part of civic Republican virtue 
because to like when they get back, they they all used it to loot the colonies, and then when they came back, prominent senators would sue them and try in 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 trials as a way of um, sort of protecting Roman virtue. And um, these two things seem sort of linked to me. And I, I can go further into it, but just first of all, am I right about what Bur- you know what what was Burke's argument about the birds of prey, and how how do you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. So that's an argument that actually appears even earlier than that in Burke's thinking about the American Revolution um, and some of his objection to the the aggressive approach that uh, that the North government took to the Americans was that it would get young British soldiers accustomed to um, basically tyrannizing Englishmen. And in that case, unlike in India, he thought of the Americans as essentially Englishmen uh, abroad. And a big part of his concern early on, and when the war actually got going, um, was that the the soldiers who were out there were being taught to treat free people as if they were as if they were less than human. And then they were going to come back. And what kind of roles were they going to have in our society at that point? It's an argument that then kind of percolates with Burke. And by the time that he's thinking about India at the end of the 1780s and into the 90s, it's very, very important for him. It has a lot to do with how he thinks about the problems with the way that Britain was governing India. So the speech where he talks about birds of prey and all that, that's actually not in the Hastings impeachment, but it's a couple of years before. It's a speech that's called um, the speech on, on Fox's East India Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in, it's in December of 1783. Uh, Charles James Fox, the leader of the Whigs had proposed to basically nationalize the East India company. So to normalize the way in which Britain was governing India by making it actual government policy rather than this weird thing where this company that was part private, part public was running things. Sort of Blackwater ish, right? It was like contractor, but it was doing the government's bidding, right? Yeah, but they were using British soldiers. Right. The actual army was working for them. And Fox and Burke and a few other people, Philip Francis, some of the leading Whigs, um, thought that this really needed to change. And Fox proposed this bill on uh, on the East India Company. And in the course of arguing for it, it was extremely controversial. The king was very much opposed to it and got involved in politics in a way that created all kinds of problems. And in the course of the argument for that bill, Burke makes this case that the way we're governing India is destroying a generation of young English soldiers and leaving them in a place where they're not going to be fit for living in a free society when they come back. Um, And that then becomes, two years later, the, the Hastings trial begins, and that argument is a very important part of what Burke argues. It's an argument that did not succeed. I mean, the, the East India Bill didn't pass. The Well, it passed the House, and then the Lords uh, killed it. The Warren Hastings impeachment failed. Again, the Lords uh, acquitted him. But it's an argument that became a very, very important part of how British governments then thought about their, their, their colonialism. And by the middle of the 19th century, English colonialism is very aware of that kind of critique that Burke had made at the end of the 18th century. And it was very much about what kind of people is this making us into rather than how are we treating them. Burke was worried about both, but that, that first argument ended up being much more powerful in, in British politics than just a kind of critique of colonialism. 
was Burke much of a student of ancient Rome? I mean, was that did that factor into his thinking at all? I mean, certainly a lot of the founders were well up to speed on Rome and Roman politics. Yeah, Burke had an education that was similar to the founders. You know, he was in the same generation and, of course, was in, in Ireland and England and not in America. But the kind of schooling he had was similar. He knew an awful lot about Cicero. And it seems to me very plausible that he knew a lot generally about Roman history. Burke is very... Um, he, he's not inclined to put his schooling on the table in a way that a lot of people were in that generation. And so he rarely mentions philosophers. He rarely talks about history, but it's perfectly clear that he was deeply educated. Well, we know he was. He, he, he went to Trinity College um, and it shows in his writing, but he doesn't, he doesn't talk much about a deep knowledge of Roman history. I suspect he had some. The amount that you would have as a well-educated Irish-born Englishman in the 18th century. It was a lot more than we have. Sure, sure. Yeah, because and so I want to I want to circle back to it a couple different ways. But one of the reasons why this stuck in my head was because I was trying to talk about the state of American conservatism now, right? And and on one level, the man, the the way the East India Company was run in the seven you know in the 1700s doesn't have an exact correlation with anything that's going on now. But this point about how it's bad. It's bad for, quote unquote, us, right? It's bad for our souls. It's bad for our characters to be doing bad things. First of all, I think is a form of argumentation that is so missing in all sorts of contexts in American life today and that is sorely needed. And in one place where I think, I think it's a really strained analogy, but I'm going to make it anyway, is the way young conservative activist types are being taught to think about politics today. If you look at, um, you know, if you, if <laughs> by very strained analogy, if you think of social media as India, um, what we are doing to young conservatives that think this is the way you do politics, right? The, that um, the way they, you know, you look at this Kanye West, or say the artist formerly known as Kanye West, stuff where you have young online conservative activist types and some of them are frauds, Candace Owens, Benny Johnson, you know, uh, Charlie Kirk types, although I, I don't know specifically what Charlie Kirk said, who will take the non-anti-Semitic parts about what Kanye says and sort of hide it or, or minimize it and then take some other part of it and say, see, they're trying to silence him because he's calling out the regime or whatever. Um, all for clicks and to monetize outrage and all the rest. You see this happen to a lot of young conservative writers, you know, the 20-something the, the, the Jonah Goldbergs and Yuval Levins um, are learning really bad lessons. And I've focused almost entirely on why it's bad for conservatism. And it dawned on me that I haven't focused on the fact that it's really bad for them. Like, it's, 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 bad, it's, it's, it's bad for the interns and the RAs and the young writers at, at places like National Review to internalize this way of thinking about politics as performative blood sport. Um, and anyway, it was a little bit of an epiphany. It was an epiphany for me. So, you know. I, I very much agree with this. This really, in a way, gets to the heart of a lot of what I've tried to think about in terms of how institutions form us, too. And it actually goes to the core, I would say, of the difference between a kind of classical virtue ethics, Aristotelian ethics, the right kind of ethics, and the way we now think about what, the way in a sense we think about ethics in modern times. So 
modern ethics asks the question, what is it permissible to do? Um, and a more classical approach to ethics asks the question, what kind of person do I want to be? Um, and sometimes those are the same. A lot of that is about what should I be doing? That is ultimately the ethical question. But if the, if the underlying question you're asking is, what sort of person is this turning me into? Then you think a lot about habits and you think about formation. You think about what you're what shape you're coming to take by virtue of what of how you're behaving here, um, and the, that question, what kind of person do I want to be, is a much more useful and much more profound kind of ethical question. I thought about it a lot in in reading Russ Roberts's recent book, which is really a wonderful book, um, and in a sense, it's about how modern ethics is useless in really important situations. Um, and Russ has, I think, been kind of backing himself into an Aristotelian ethics. Um, and ultimately, the, the question that you, you ask yourself there is, who am I becoming? What is this turning me into? And that argues for being very careful about habituation. It argues for being kind of excessively earnest in how you think about how you behave. Um, and not because you might get in trouble, not because there are rules about this, though that's all important. But ultimately, because you want to be a particular kind of person, and the way you behave in life is what makes you into one kind of person or another. And so that leaves you, and this, this does get back to Burke, because Burke, from the very beginning of, of his public thinking, is very, very concerned with how people get shaped by, by radicalism. Um, he was interested in, in aesthetics for this reason, um, and was interested in a, in a the problems he had with the French Revolution start so early because the French Revolution just strikes him as encouraging people to lose their bearings and lose their sense of proportion and balance. And he says, once you've marched through the streets of Paris with heads on a pike, how are you actually going to get back to talking about what the budget of the Navy should be? You're just not going to be able to recover political life. Um, and that has a lot to do with what you get yourself used to, with what you get yourself accustomed to. And I do think that in this moment in our politics, people take for granted really weird things. The assumption is that it, it almost, it feels to younger people like a kind of sophisticated cynicism to say, you know, this is all about power. All that stuff about limited government was just, you know, was just a way to keep ourselves weak. And I, I think they miss just about everything that has been at the core of the argument for conservatism. And fundamentally, the, the, way I, the way I find myself thinking when I hear it is that the mistake they're making is to think that cynicism is sophisticated. Cynicism is actually really naive. Um, and, you know, cynical motives actually remarkably rarely explain what happens in politics. One of the strangest things to learn about politics when you're up close to it. And I've worked for a president and worked for a Speaker of the House and various members of Congress. And was, the hardest thing to really wrap your head around is that everybody basically thinks they're doing a good thing. Um, and very few people really get out of bed to create huge problems for other people. And in a way, you know, that sounds hopelessly naive and, 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 and excessively earnest but it's actually the hardest truth to accept about our political life because it means you have to think about people you disagree with in a very different way than we're normally inclined to do. 
And, you know, ask yourself, like, what is the cynical explanation for what you're doing? And if you can't come up with one, there probably isn't one for what the other guy's doing either. And th- that forces you to think about political life in a way that takes yourself and other people a lot more seriously. And again, as you're saying, I, I think that also is a way to keep yourself from becoming so jaded that you just become a bad person. Um, and I think a lot of what happens in the kind of performative moment we're living in, where everybody thinks everybody else is just putting on a show, so I should be too, is that people actually do become the kind of caricatures that cynical people have always had about politics. And if that's actually what you're doing, then you lose the ability to really engage in politics in a serious way. Um, And then, you know, we have no right to complain that our politics is failing and is unserious. I mean, if that's how we're behaving, that's how it's going to be. I think in some ways, the hardest thing to recover is the sense that this actually matters and that the, the people we're fighting with think it matters too. And that what we're fighting about is what would be best for the country rather than whether we should do good or evil for the country. Um, all of this, I think, strikes younger people now as, uh, you know, as, as, as old fashioned and naive. And I guess I think they're the ones who are being naive. I, I largely agree with that. I dis, I have some disagreements at the margins because in the last seven years, I've just met too many people who have been cynical, <laughs> um, and, sure. they're, and they're and cynically motivated. Um, oh, uh, me too. Um, but, uh, but I think this point about how the assumption that everyone is cynical or that everyone is evil, right. Or that, you know, the others are evilly motivated. And this is a big complaint of mine is like, I, I just try to tell college. I said this last night in my talk. I was like, you know, Nazis, even Nazis, we can agree bad. They didn't set out to be the villains, to be the, 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 the go-to example of bad people for a thousand years, right. To be played by British actors as the most evil people of the 20th century. They thought, something else about themselves. They were wrong, and some of them were objectively evil, evil and all the rest. But, but I think you're right, that, 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 that you need a little grace toward, towards other people. There are certainly some people now who are playing into the caricature, who actually are being very cynical. And there's also an element of Washington that is a kind of, you know that book, This Town? Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the author. It was one of the Politico guys. Yeah. Um, that described Washington as as just the PR side of Washington, just the, the 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 that facet of the journalistic world and the political consultant world that essentially is purely cynical, and took that to be what Washington is. And mm-hmm. I, I always think that's the kind of that's the contemporary error about Washington. That world is actually not very important, um, and it is not a significant part of what happens in Washington and in our politics in general. That world really is cynical, um, and certainly, I you know, in the last few years, I think the 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 proportion of people around our politics who are openly cynical has gotten a little higher. There are always some, but the people who actually move our politics, the people who are actually um, devoting their lives, in a sense, to some political engagement, to running for office, to working at the at the highest levels of government, those people they have a lot of problems. Don't get me wrong; I have a lot of complaints about them. But they're not fundamentally playing a cynical game. I think that is a way to misunderstand them pretty profoundly. Two things. One, um, I recall a conversation I had with, with, of all people, Dick Morris. Um, He was on a National Review cruise, and we were on a van going to talk to 
some governor that some port that we were in or something. I can't remember exactly what. And he was asking me, so, you know, what do you got going on? What are you doing these days? And I said, well, I write for National Review and I got a syndicated column and I got my box contract, whatever. And I listed the things I do, you know, and, and he was like, no, no, I mean, but like, what else, what else you got going on? I don't know, my, my kids in fourth grade, uh, you know, <laughs> I did, and he's like, no, no. He's like, but you don't have any like, you know, other, you know, stuff going on. And what he was trying to get at was like, what's my side hustle? What am I, how am I monetizing the fact that I am who I am and all that kind of stuff? Because that's all his life was. And so he assumes other people do that. And I always thought this was the, Dick Morris was a very smart guy, but a really not great person in part because he was so, this is the point about cynicism that I think is right, is that when you assume everyone else is cynical, it gives you permission to be cynical. And, um, and so his analysis was always, even his honest analysis, and sometimes he lied in his analysis because he was so cynical, but uh, his analysis always had the problem with, like in foreign policy, what they call it mirroring, where you just assume the, other, the people on the other side think the same way you do. He assumed everybody else thought in sort of gross uh, Machiavellian terms. And so he would just like miss the fact that uh, you know, to be grandiose about it, people have souls, you know, and yeah. People, yeah. people behave differently. But the, um, the other thing is, is I think the, part of the problem with the cynicism stuff or the instrumentalism or transactionalism, whatever you want to call it, is that it's a gateway drug. It is not a steady state. And if you look at all of the people that you and I had conversations with who made an, I still would argue, an entirely intellectually defensible case for voting for the lesser evil, for voting for, for holding your nose and voting for Trump. How few of them could maintain the position that he was evil, right? I mean, the whole point of the lesser evil is you're acknowledging the evil. And so like, if you think it's worth voting for the lesser evil to get three federal society judges on the Supreme Court, we can have an argument about it, but it's a totally intellectually colorable, defensible position. But if you can't maintain your commit, your understanding that the person that you you're using instrumentally is bad, you end up defining good by the bad person's. You make, you make the bad person the new standard for good, and we've seen so much of that on the right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the way. Th- this is one implication of the fact that people are not as cynical as we might be inclined to think, because you're not actually able to sustain right a fundamentally cynical approach, you have to persuade yourself at some level that this is good. And it's also an example of how that kind of thinking deforms you. I mean, that's what it means to say that that approaching, uh, in this case, politics in a certain way, that behaving in a certain way cannot help but transform who you are, the kind of person you are. And ultimately, you come to redefine good and bad by virtue of the the ways in which you've behaved around that question. This is why I think cynicism is so dangerous, and also why I think the assumption that people go into politics with, or the assumption that is now so common among younger people on the right, I think it's also true on the left, um, is is such a dangerous assumption. It, It takes for granted that there's nothing serious here, that all there is is what you find on the surface, is what you find on social media, is what you find in the kind of half-joking, maybe three-quarters-joking way that people have adopted for talking about this moment in our politics, where you sort of make yourself feel better by pretending it's a joke, 
but, but you're not actually joking. You're becoming a kind of person who can't tell the difference. And there's no way around changing who you are by virtue of how you behave. That's why it makes sense to try to do the right thing, even when you don't have to, because ultimately you're going to become incapable of doing it when you do have to. Um, and, you know, again, I think it's a, it's a particular way of thinking about ethics. It's a particular way of thinking about the nature of the human person as needing formation and therefore is always in the process of being formed by the way in which you live. And that makes really great demands on who you are. I think it's at the core of republicanism understood in a particular way. I mean, it's, it's the reason why a free society requires people who behave responsibly. Um, you know, at some level, we could deal with a lot of people who don't behave responsibly. We have, you know, we, we have law enforcement and we, we have all kinds of, of social institutions. But we actually can't function as a free society if we don't, on the whole, behave responsibly even when we don't have to. And getting people to do that is very hard. I mean, that is the educational challenge of the free society. That's why it's important that we take serious things seriously. Otherwise, we become incapable of uh, the hard work of being citizens. See, that's the perfect segue to that second part of what I was thinking about, which is, and my apologies to Andy Smerick, because I had talked about this Roman trial stuff in a podcast with Kevin Williamson two months ago, and he was like, oh, I got to think about this because I'm working on republicanism. So I hope I have not spoiler alerted his forthcoming article on some of this stuff. But um, because I've been thinking about it too, he's like, Again, I don't know a lot about these trials. I've been poking around a little bit in ancient Rome, but, and there's a lot of, let's be honest, there's a lot of self-serving cynicism stuff where, you know, mm. prominent Roman senators would try to get more prominent by rhetorically shining and all this stuff in these trials. Absolutely. But um, there is an argument that, um we should be doing more of that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, the, let me put it this way. The benefit of the Roman trials was, yeah, there was a lot of uh, trying to take other people down a peg and all that kind of stuff. But the way the arguments were done, the way the trials were done was, was almost entirely through the power of rhetoric. So on a constant basis, people were appealing to the ideals of Republican virtue, the ideals of civic virtue, the ideals of Rome, um, and all that. And, you know, I'm not a Rome worshiper, but they were, they had a certain ideal about what statesmen, what honorable people do. And that was the rhetoric of it, which is very much like the Hastings, um, impeachment. It was appealing to, uh, the best version of ourselves. And, um, it seems to me that, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of populism, but, there is a sense in which the populace have a very solid point, which I do agree with, that, that there is this yeah. sense in which the 1%, the, 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 the elite, whatever term we're going to use um, for it, um, just simply get to live different lives by different rules. Um, they, you know, this is my constant refrain about why you need simple rules for a complex society because it, complexity is a subsidy for the people with the cognitive, social, financial capital to figure with, deal with the complication. Um, and so having more 
mechanisms. I don't know what they would be. I don't know that we should criminally prosecute people um, uh, that shouldn't be criminally prosecuted. We should criminally prosecute everybody that should be criminally prosecuted. But, you know, we talk a lot about creating new institutions, figuring out an institution that actually does plays something of that role in the, of, of these Roman trials of colonial governors who were self-serving and self-dealing. It feels like we're missing something like that. And certainly media is not doing it. So anyway, that's sort of what it, 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 there's something there I can't. I, I think that there is definitely a way in which populism at, at its best tries to hold our society to, to account on the basis of our own ideals, which are egalitarian ideals. Um, populism is a reaction against the sense that there is an elite that is not accountable to the rest of society. And I think it's true to a greater extent than usual in our time that there is an elite that is not accountable to the rest of society. And there have been some changes in American life that have meant that there's one elite now in America to a very unusual degree. Um, you know, the people who used to run different institutions in America used to be very different kinds of people. The, the, the person who, would, who was president of a bank was really nothing like um, you know, the, the, the person who, who ran a, a, a government agency or who taught English at a university. Or an environmental conservation program. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. they're very much alike. They're essentially interchangeable, uh, you know, because of our higher education system and other changes. Um, and there is an elite, and it makes sense that there, that there would be a populist reaction. The trouble is the, the, that reaction presents itself as wanting to tear down the elite when in fact, in a sense, what it's asking for is a more is a more responsible elite, um, is is actual responsible uh, authority, and that's very hard for populism to ask for. And so, I think oftentimes when there are these populist moments in American life, the reaction they require is ways of holding elites to account, making them responsible. Um, but what they actually ask for is just tearing down the elite, tearing down the institutions, tearing down the establishment, and so on. And the bigger problem maybe is that in this moment, what it would take to get a more responsible elite would involve a change in the ethos of higher education. Um, the, 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 The set of institutions that really forms our elite are the elite universities. The top, you know, couple of percent, so maybe 150, 200 universities in the United States, where Everybody who we might think of as part of the American elite goes through those institutions, is very much shaped by them, and at the moment is shaped by them to be pretty irresponsible. That is to think that what it, the reason that they are in an elite position is that they proved themselves able at the time of admission to college, and therefore they have nothing else to prove. And that's a very, that's a very dangerous kind of implicit assumption to have at the core of an elite. American universities, elite universities, used to be more formative than that of responsibility. They used to be a little bit more like the kind of British boarding schools that that were actually designed to humble the elite. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not that at all anymore. And and of course, the extent to which they ever were is easy to exaggerate. Um, and I, I think if we get to a place where we can hold elites to 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 a higher standard in America we would have to get there through some changes in American higher education. And that's not good news because American higher education not only is in bad shape, but is more resistant to improvement than just about any other institution in our society. This is another perfect segue for me. So I gave a talk about, uh, some, about some of this stuff at 
old Parkland in Texas a week or two ago. And um, I think I talked about it on the podcast last week, but um, I agree with you entirely about higher education. I think that part of the, and this gets to, you know, a lot of your stuff about institutions is that we often talk about how institutions, right, form character, mold character, whatever. And I think the, the case against higher education is they are f- forming character, but their definition of good character is a bad definition of good character. And, um, you know, my standard riff on this, I know I'm repeating myself, but, you know, the, the part of the utopianism of the American left is it's not trying to create a heaven on earth. It's not trying to create a classless society. It is trying to extend into the infinite future, the college experience. <laughs> and um, and we've, we've trained these kids at these elite schools that, first of all, being liberal is uh, rebellious, right? Because in the American experience and young people in general, they hate being told they're conformists. And so the irony of it is, is that the ideology and the ideological orientation that they adopt is the most conformist ideology possible. But the way you sell it, the, the coding on the pill is to tell them it's rebellious, right? So they yeah. agree with their professors. You know, campus life now, it, it always reminds me of that scene from, uh, from, from Life of Brian, where there's this huge crowd outside the, the palace and they're all screaming, we're all individual. Oh no, the right. person on the stage says, you're all individuals. And the crowd says, we're all individuals. And there's one guy in the middle who says, I'm not. <laughs> that, that guy is the, is the conservative on the college campus. Right. right? And, right. and in a sense, everybody is, is told together that they're individuals and believes together in perfect conformity that they're individuals. But the, the thing, the more important part is because, you know, you and I, we know this, this stuff well about complaining about the ideological indoctrination of higher education and blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying it's wrong. I've done that argument a million times. You've heard that argument a million times. That's not the real problem. The real problem gets to your points about character formation in institutions. We treat these kids like their feelings are supreme, that complaint always yields reward, that protest is now considered explicitly part of the college experience so that you're supposed to be showing signs of real ingratitude towards this institution that has taken care of you for four years that somebody else is paying for. Um, You're supposed to go into class assuming your professors are wrong about like anything positive they have to say about Western tradition or or the canon or America. Um, And we tell them that even though their 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 food, room and board, security, utilities, um, uh, cleaning services are all paid for by somebody else, that this is the definition of independence. And you come out of an institution like that, it, you know the 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 you know universities aren't supposed to tell you what to know; they're supposed to tell you how to think. And that experience is creating people who think about what the country should be like, what society should be like in ways that I don't think are particularly helpful to society or the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's especially important for, for the universities to realize, and, and particularly elite universities, but there are a lot of what we would think of as elite universities, to see that they're not just shaping people, they're shaping the American elite. There's no mm-hmm. way around that now. And so 
That means in particular that they have a responsibility to shape these people to see that there are constraints on them um, and to shape them in a way that makes them responsible somehow to the larger society. And instead, they're being shaped to basically despise the larger society. And again, it's not, it's not exactly in the, in the form of ideological right. uh, indoctrination. There's some of that. But it's, it's by way of creating a set of habits that essentially leaves them thinking that there ought to be no constraints on them, that what they go out to do is to elevate themselves and, and be, be themselves on a platform that by virtue of having gotten into this institution, they've shown that they're worthy of that. And in a sense, the university says what it takes to prove yourself worthy of an elite is what it takes, is what it takes to prove yourself worthy of being admitted here, rather than what we do here is make you worthy. Mm-hmm. So the, they allow students to complain about privilege, but other people's privilege, mm-hmm. rather than helping students become worthy of privilege. Um, those students are privileged and they're going to be. The question isn't whether they will be or not. The question is whether they will be worthy of it or not. And that question is not taken up. And so the answer is that they won't be. And the, the, the change in ethos that would have to happen for higher ed in America to take this responsibility seriously is immense. I mean, I think we can get at the margins of it through liberal education and various kinds of things that conservatives try to work on. But the challenge is just enormous, and it is at the very center of what's driving some of the populist resentment that we see, so that it's a huge challenge to think about. People, I think, are not well focused on it. I mean, we don't take the problem to be fundamentally about this kind of of ethical purpose of higher education. But I I think when you step back and ask yourself what really has gone wrong, and it's easy to exaggerate what's gone wrong. I mean, look, America is a great country. Um, it's not the case that everything's failed and everything's gone wrong and we're living in a cesspool. Uh, Far from it. But why do we have the problems we have? I think this question of elite formation, which which gets back to the question of formation in general that you started with, of how to think about the kind of person you want to be, um, is really at at the core of a lot of what we now need to work on. I'm so uncomfortable talking about some of this stuff because I have always been more of the John Belushi taking the guy singing, um, singing on the guitar, the animal house. Um, I gave my love a cherry and smashing their guitar against the wall. When people started talking about ethics and integrity and, and all these kinds of things. And I feel I, one of my great resentments about the Trump era is, is that I had to sort of abandon a lot of those sorts of habits, which I was very comfortable in being sort of, you know, the, 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 the funny attack the left guy. Um, um, and I resent having to be like this truth squatter guy. I don't like it. It's not mine. It is, it, it runs against the grain of my character. And I think about this a lot about why I, I sort of resisted going with this whole thing. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that like, I always thought I was as far up against the line of irresponsible rhetoric and, uh, and sort of excessive jocularity as decorum and decency would allow, right? I, could, I couldn't go any further or much further than I could go without hating myself for being just sort of a piggish kind of unserious person. And I, I always wanted to be considered a serious person. So like I went that far, but no farther kind of thing. 
And now I see all of these people who used to wag their finger at me for being too silly or not taking myself seriously enough, who've gone so much further into unseriousness and dishonesty than I ever could have imagined I would ever do. And I resent them for it, partly because I feel like, weren't you the guy who was lecturing me? I mean, like, again, like, I hate to pick on Bill Bennett because I love the guy personally, but, you know, Bill Bennett on his radio show used to, right before we went, you know, during the commercial break, right before I would go on, he would come on and say, now, Jonah, I just want to remind you, this is a family-oriented show. We don't work blue here. None of that salty language and all that kind of stuff. And then when Trump starts rising up, I listen to Bill because I used to listen to him all the time, talking about how I don't understand why people have a problem with Donald Trump. It's because he uses salty language? Well, who cares about that? You know, that kind of thing. And that's the president of the United States or a guy who wants to be president of the United States versus some sort of, you know, let Jonah out of his kennel to, to do some dog tricks kind of guy. Um, that kind of thing, I think, really bothers me. But what, anyway, the, the reason I bring it up is that I have come to think that the, the single most important habit formation aspect of observance of ethics is adherence to the truth. Because once you lose that, everything is permissible, right? And I think that we have two versions of this. On the right, you have the sort of the Roger Stone, Donald Trump sort of thing that just says, just lie, right? Just, you know what the truth is, but just lie. It doesn't really matter. Uh, maybe some, for some of them, like with Trump, it's like the George Costanza true. If you believe it, it's not a lie, right? You can convince yourself that, you know, that QAnon is real or there's something to it, blah, blah, blah. And on the left, I think 40 years of, 50 years of the postmodern sort of deconstructionist, you know, you know, uh, uh, post-structural, you know, all the, the Foucault stuff, which says that all perspectives are valid. If you can make a colorable argument about how you see the world, there's no objective standard of truth that says that's necessarily wrong. You had, you know, the guys at the, you know, at social tech saying that you could literally argue that physics <laughs> was um, a, you know, a white male construction of the pale penis people or whatever. And that, you know, and I think those two things combined, the character formation you get in higher ed tells you it's not lying if you can make, if you can articulate a literary theory about a grievance that sounds plausible, that's enough. It doesn't have to actually be true. The 1619 Project was not true at its core assertions, but it, was, it sounded plausible enough, and that's all you need to attract supporters and, and admiration and, um, and career success. And I think these two things are undermining vast swaths of the culture, and I'll stop the rant now. I, I think this gets at some very important questions, and it raises a few things for me. I, first of all, I, I, I think that the, the question of what kind of effect you want to have on the general tenor of public conversation is an important question for someone who's involved somehow in public conversation. And I, I would say, and this is dispositional too, but in my own work, I certainly lean too hard in the direction of just being the earnest, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sometimes moralizer, sometimes uh, wonk, sometimes this and that. You play the role well, Yuval, I got to tell you. <laughs> to be an earnest <laughs> voice. To be an earnest voice yeah. seems to me now it's necessary. It's not always my own personality exactly, though sometimes it is. But I think it's what's actually needed now. Um, and in that sense, it's a way to be, um, to be a little countercultural that can actually be constructive. And, you know, I just don't think young people need another friend. I don't think they need more entertainment. 
I think they need to see that there's something to be gained by taking serious things seriously. At the same time, I also think that there is a, it, it, it was possible to say not very long ago that a key difference between the left and right in the public debate is that the right thinks the problem we face is that we're all human beings, and that means our society is subject to certain kinds of enduring moral challenges that have to be dealt with through an adherence to enduring moral truths. And the left thinks that there are other people in our society who are evil and creating problems for the rest of us, and those people need to be combated. Mm -hmm. Now I would say the left and right both think that. They both think the problem in our society is there are other people here who are evil and need to be combated. And that gives you permission to do all kinds of things that you would not do if you thought the problem was we're all, you know, fallen human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think in a, in a certain way, the, the notion that everything would be great if not for those damn people is now the dominant theme of American political life. And we approach every election thinking, well, this time we're going to get rid of those damn people, which is stupid anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not how, it's not how our elections work. But it's also not actually how our society works. And the, w- w- what, what Bill Bennett really knew, I'm sure he still knows it, but he doesn't behave that way in, in as obvious a way now, is that the, the fundamental moral problem requires a certain way of behaving. Um, and that it's a problem that is found in the human soul, not in the other party. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means both that we're all subject to it, but also that in thinking about the other party, we have to think in terms of of how to uh, 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 of how to address these problems as moral problems rather than as uh, fun, you know fundamentally, ultimately political problems. At this point, the right very much thinks in terms of of what I would think of as a kind of left-wing oppressor-oppressed mode of understanding society that says we are the oppressed, the other party is the powerful elite oppressor, and everything we have to do is a function of resisting them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not entirely unfounded. It's never entirely unfounded. But the question is whether it's the right way to think about how to improve things and how to win the battles we need to win for our politics to improve American life. I think we've lost a fundamentally conservative sense that the real challenge and the real purpose is to form the rising generation to be better people and to be capable of handling the responsibility that's involved in in living in a free society. And instead, we think the fundamental challenge is to defeat the left, which is destroying all that is good in American life. Now, I think part of what's required to advance the right's actual mission is to defeat the left at election day. But we have to see that as part of a larger purpose, that we're we're engaged in an argument with them about the nature of the problems we face. I think we've, to to a far too great a degree, have accepted the the terms of the left. Um, And we're now arguing about which side is the evil oppressor rather than whether we should understand the core challenge of politics as oppressor-oppressed or as social order, social breakdown. I think the latter is closer to right. It's closer to human nature. And it's my kind of conservatism anyway. Isn't part of the problem, though, 
that it's rhetorically all about oppressor oppressed and we have to destroy the left and, um, or destroy the right. You know, I mean, there's just enormous amount of that. I mean, like people get very mad at me for doing both sides stuff, but I mean, I really do believe that most of America's problems are America's problems and not problems of Democrats or Republicans. And, um, I see so much symmetry in the form of argumentation from both left and right. Um, it, 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 it kind of drives me crazy, but, isn't part of the problem that for an enormous number of people, they just don't mean it, right? I mean, like, what I mean by is, is uh, this is um, the catastrophizing and all this. It's very, you know, as I wrote in my book about how people follow politics as a form of entertainment, and that takes us into a lot of bad places. And there's always the danger that's, that some fringe is going to take this rhetoric seriously. You know, if you say, you know, if these guys get in power, it's the end of America. A hundred thousand, you know, the vast majority of people aren't going to do anything dangerous or violent about it, but there is the danger that, you know, a tiny percentage will. But for the most part, it's sort of like, it's sort of like sports fandom, right? I mean, like there are people, I'm in Pennsylvania today, like there are people at Penn State who think, you know, if, if, if our team loses the, you know, the playoffs, it will be the end of the world, right? You know? But they don't actually mean it. They still go to work on Monday if the team loses. Um, the way we talk about politics, so much of it is just filling the airtime on Fox News or an MSNBC as sort of ramping up to keep people tuned in um, to a form of of entertainment. And, I, the, and the reason I bring this up is I think it's hugely important because it, it – it gets at the problem with not telling the truth insofar as you have, I don't know, 538 just did this piece the other day about how basically nobody moves because of politics. I mean, a tiny, tiny, tiny number of people. Lots of people talk about, oh, I'm going to leave, the, you know, I'm leaving the state because, or I'm leaving this country because if we lose this election, it's, it's a rounding error of a rounding error, the number of people who actually do it, right? And yet we're talking about Americans killing each other in a civil war over politics when they're not willing to move. And so like, the, I, there's, there's, a, there's, there's this amping up of the climate as a way to do fan service for bored old people who want to hear this stuff um, and to motivate young people to vote. Um, but its connection with the reality of this country is, is, tenuous at best. And maybe the real problem with a lot of this stuff is it's just wasting everybody's time because, I mean, it's also, I think it's bad for people's characters to be sure. That's how we began this. But if you spend all your time talking about problems that don't exist and solutions that you cannot achieve rather than like figuring out how to make the water safe in Flint, Michigan, you're just burning time and wasting resources and time is a resource um, and maybe you're preparing the country for the kind of politics that we're talking about now, but yeah. So I mean, I I, I think one way to think about th that question is to distinguish what this attitude is causing us to do from what it is keeping us from doing. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Um, and it's true; it doesn't cause us to actually take up arms against each other or move to Canada or anything else. But I don't think that means that people don't believe it. Um, and I don't think people can say something they don't believe for this long and still not believe it. 
so that I think a lot of partisans in our politics and even people who are not deeply engaged partisans really do believe what they say and much of what they hear about the other party. And the problem it creates is what it keeps us from doing, which is it keeps us from engaging in a politics of democratic negotiation. Um, and so, as you say, it keeps us from solving some kinds of problems that we probably could solve or at least improve. I don't really believe in solve as a way to talk in politics, but um, th- there are things we could make better if we assumed that politics is not about a fight to the death and a struggle for the survival of society at every moment. Oh, there are such moments. We usually don't live in them, and that's good. For the most part, it's an argument about which problems to prioritize, how to take them on, what, wh- wh- whose concerns should matter, and how to get to a place where we negotiate with each other so that our different answers to that question result in some meaningful action. Um, that's a much more boring way to think about politics. And in, in a free society that's reasonably functional, politics should be pretty boring. This, this attitude keeps us from having the kind of boring politics that would be a lot more satisfying to most people. Now, I do think most Americans are not uh, you know, crazy engaged political activists, and they don't feel like we're on the verge of civil war. But what our politics has become is a a mode of a, a venue for expression for those who are, and that means that what our politics is not is a place to to take on national challenges and to and to build up some uh, common ground in our politics that would allow a very diverse, divided country to address its problems in a constructive way. Now, our politics is never simply that, right? It's always ugly. It's always fairly unpopular. Um, Congress has never been very popular, nor should it be. And all that we can always say, but I think we're living in a moment that is particularly deformed on this front. And that has a lot to do with the sense people have that the problem to be solved is the other party. It's why people can vote for totally unconscionable. You know, you ask yourself, how could you think that guy should be your senator? Well, that's actually not the question people are asking themselves. The question is about the other party and how to keep them from being in power. And that creates all kinds of strange deformities in American political life that I think a better attitude about what politics is really about, and ultimately it would have to be rooted in a truer sense of what the core social challenge is, and therefore a truer sense of the nature of the human person. Politics really does have to root itself in that kind of anthropology at the end of the day. To believe that human beings are imperfect but can be improved, that the improvement happens through moral formation, that happens through healthy institutions, that gets you to a place where you can think about politics in a more constructive way. I think we've lost touch with that place and instead of adapted ourselves to a a, a distorted idea of human nature, which has traditionally been the left's idea, but which now is also held by too much of the right. No, I agree. Look, I, I agree with that entirely. I'm not saying that everybody thinks it's a form of entertainment, but everybody in too many people in positions of responsibility think their job is to be entertainers, right? Um, and uh, and I think that deforms character as well. Um, Definitely. So one last meta point because we're coming up on an hour and. I wanted to do some punditry, but we just don't have time for it. Um, 
So one of the points you've made often is that you got to that people need to remember that institutions are really important, but they need to do something, right? This is a point that Robert Nisbet made. You know that that you don't form an institution just so you can socialize with people, right? There's, they, they need to accomplish something. They're for doing something, and I agree with that in, in, entirely. And we've talked about how you know we need to sort of figure out how to create new institutions that do the things that people need done. Isn't part, first of all, two-part question. Isn't part of the problem that technology obviates the needs for a lot of human institutions, right? I mean, like, you know, I, I know the Amish still have their barn, barn building things where they all get together, but that's an outlier, right? Um, there were lots of things that you needed to do together because there was no technology that allowed a person to do it individually. The example I often use when I was the editor of the, co-editor of a college newspaper, I was very proud of the fact that I moved us from the days of X-Acto knives to lay out the, the pages to a computer, right? And we would lay it out. And the problem was, is I did enormous damage to the institution because it used to be every other Wednesday, the entire staff got together. We had pizza and we would put together the newspaper because you needed many hands to do it. Then all of a sudden with a computer, you have one person as a bottleneck at the computer and people would bring their copy and then leave. And it lost that esprit de corps because of it. The question is, is like, how do you create human, first part of it is how do you create human institutions that technology renders unnecessary? Um, and two, do we have too much of a hard and fast distinction between institutions and technology? Um, because in a certain sense, you know, technology is tools, institutions are tools and technology can change character. You know, if you think about how much the iPhone or the smartphone has changed people's lives, it's changed as much as a lot of institutions have changed. And it's changed a lot of institutions in the process. Um, and universities are essentially technology, right? Um, they're tools for how we educate people. Like, how should we think about these distinctions? Yeah, I very much agree with that. I, I, I think technology is too broad a term to describe the problem you're getting at, which is a very real problem. So there is certainly a way in which, particularly network technology, has, has let us uh, meet needs in ways that don't require socialization. If you, if you step back and look at what a lot of our uses of the internet have made possible over the past 15 years or so, you would say what this is enabling is a kind of functional loner. Um, it lets you just get stuff done without having to look anybody in the eye. And a lot of the most popular kinds of uses of the internet aren't even all that technological exactly. They, they, mediate between the, the, they mediate in such a way that allows us to avoid dealing with other people. So that if you mm -hmm. live in a city now, you can get from place to place, you can you know, get food at a restaurant, you can you can date someone and you, and the, the things that are usually involved in getting to that place uh, just involve a lot less human interaction. You don't have to have a friend introduce you to somebody you might end up dating. You can put in exactly what you want in an app and, and hope to end there. You know, the, the Uber shows up and if you want to talk to the driver, you can, but you, you, you don't have to, um, you know, you walk into a place and they have your food in a bag with your name on it and you walk out if you're a loner, that's amazing. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. thing. Um, but if you're a person who needs socialization in order to become a decent human being, that is to say, if you're a human being, it's not that great. Um, and there are definitely a lot of ways in which 
like the story you described, technological advances by making things more efficient, make it less necessary for us to engage with one another. And that means that we, that the kind of secondary effects that those engagements had go away. And Nisbet loved to say, people don't come together to be together. People come together to do something together. And if you don't have to come together in order to do that something, then you're not going to get the kind of socialization to just say, let's have a meeting so we can get to know your neighbors better. Not a lot of people are going to show up. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just hard to prioritize that kind of thing. But if you say, we need to have a meeting so that we can decide what to do about, uh, you know, building a road, people will show up. Um, If that is less and less necessary, people show up less and less. Now, I do think it's important to the second part of your question to distinguish different kinds of technology there, because the problem is not that we're using tools. The problem is that we're meeting these needs in a networked way. A network is different from an institution because the roles that it gives people are temporary um, and kind of interchangeable. So an institution gives people roles, right? It says, this is the job you have here. And uh, that means that this is what's required of you. This is when you have to show up. And essentially, it gives you a kind of identity. Um, And this is a distinction that Arnold Kling makes in a wonderful way that in a couple of things he's written, and he's got a piece coming actually in National Affairs making this argument too. A a network lets you do some of the same things, but in a different way. You, You just kind of connect to it temporarily, you accomplish what you need, and you go away. And you were never given a role by it. Um, and so it, it lets you, it lets you act independently and use the network precisely as a platform rather than, um, to play a role defined by the institution that then shapes who you are. And so the rise of network technology, which is really what we've been living through, I think does create, um, a kind of atomization that, you know, now you can be a publisher without, taking on the role in society that a publisher would have. You can be a journalist without becoming a journalist, right? Because the demands of the institution are not there. It's so much easier to just get the benefit that would have come from the institution, but without the demands of the institution, that all of this makes it much less necessary for us to play roles that are fundamentally social roles. We can just be ourselves and get all these things done. And I do think that's a problem. Now, it's still the case that there are a lot of needs we need to meet that we're not meeting as well as we could, and that a lot of those could involve stronger, more effective institutions. I think we have to ask ourselves not only what is being lost, but what is needed that we are not doing. Um, and if you look around American life, there are a fair amount of there are a fair number of things you could point to where there are social needs that, if the picture that Tocqueville painted of Americans were true, we would be meeting by building all kinds of institutions. You know, Tocqueville says you get three Americans together and they elect a treasurer. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure that that's, that, that was ever true, but it it's, doesn't seem to be very true now. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are needs that have to do um, with various kinds of, uh, of failures of the educational system, for example, or the need to integrate immigrants, all kinds of things that we just complain about rather than do anything about, that if we thought a little more institutionally, there would be things we could do together. 
Um, and so I do think there's still room for us to use that kind of organizational uh, instinct that is distinct to Americans in ways that would have those secondary effects and would get us working with other people. But there's no question that the internet and the technologies that have risen up around it uh, pose a huge challenge to the kind of communitarian social thinking that I think is necessary for people to be good people. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it also has to do with where we started. It, it, it forms us in a particular way. And social media shapes a rising generation to think of themselves in a particular way. And I think we have to take that challenge very seriously. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's also the problem of, of network technology that it's it's bad for good communities, but it's good for bad communities. And, you know, the example I always use is like in 1950s America, there were pedophiles, right? But it was very difficult for one pedophile to talk to another pedophile, right? I mean, it's just like, it's a hard conversation to start. And um, it took work, it risked getting caught and put in jail. Um, and now the internet allows people with really bad social pathologies to feel like they're not alone and that they have, that, that they have a community that reinforces and say, hey, you, know, you shouldn't be ashamed of yourself. You know, this is an interesting kind of problem. I, I saw, it, I, I once had, when I came to Washington just after graduate school, I had a conversation about this with Irving Kristol, and he made me write an essay for him. It was called Politics After the Internet. It ran in the public interest in 2002 or so. Um, it's, it's awfully embarrassing now. Is anything written about the internet in 2002 would have to be. <laughs> but it's on the internet. You can find it. Um, and part of what I, I, I thought about then was the way in which making it easier to build those kinds of networks would be damaging to American politics. It starts from, from Madison's argument in Fairless 10 that a, a key part of, a key strength of American constitutionalism is that it, the country's huge. Um, and it'd be very hard for factions to form that are national in scope because you're going to have a few crazy people in every place, but you're not going to have a, a, a critical mass of crazy people in the whole country. And in a way, looking at the internet in 2002, I thought maybe we could have a critical mass of crazy people now in this country, and that would be kind of mm -hmm. a problem. And I, I, what I didn't see was the way that, that the internet would break down community, but it certainly was evident at that time that there would be ways in which it would build up community that could be very, very harmful, just as you're suggesting, making it easier for people who are otherwise isolated to see themselves as kind of pseudo-majorities and to act together in ways that otherwise would have been very difficult. And, you know, both these things are happening at the same time. Yeah, they don't even have to be pseudo-majorities. They can just be, yeah. you can feel like, you know, you're the Maccabees, yeah, right? You're you're like, but like, there's, there's something very empowering, particularly in American culture, about feeling like you're part of an aggrieved minority that's real, right? A minority culture that is being oppressed. And and if you and if you just if you if you just followed Twitter as a ingenue, you would think that this country is roughly evenly divided between real jerks and halfway decent people. And I think the reality is that this country is about ninety-five percent pretty decent people and five percent real jerks. But our brains can't process the the amplification of the jerks as a numerical thing, you know, I mean, it's like if, if a, a, a 
Megan McArdle makes this point that a really viral tweet that has like 25,000 likes or something like that, that fills one modest division three football stadium, right? Yeah. You know, it's not, but, it's not America, but it feels like it's representative of everything. And I think this is part of the problem you get with a lot of the sort of the new nationalists and the integralist guys is that they think there's a real movement out there for what they're talking about. And yet there are a lot, you know, that's like, most informed people still have no idea who any of these people are and never mind what they're proposing. Um, but the online world makes us feel like we are, you know, that we have the numbers on our side in some context or another. Yeah. I, I think that's true. Though Some element of this has always existed in any elite, right? The, the New York intellectuals in the middle of the 20th century mm -hmm. were having what felt like a very important conversation, but I'm sure Statistically, nobody in America knew who any of them were. Um, and so that, that kind of thing can be influential precisely because it is an elite conversation. Even though it isn't as important as it feels, it actually can mm -hmm. have real consequences. And I, I think that's true of what's going on now, too, on the left and right. Yeah, but the, I mean, the distinction there, I would, only, I would push back on that a little, is only that I agree with you that those conversations were important, those elite conversations were important. But the whole orientation of a lot of these people now is that they are populist movements, right? Yes, that, that's true. That, 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 you know, everyone seems to think that the silent majority... To imagine you have a following is, is, is bizarre. Right. You know, and, um, uh, and it's distorting. It's, it, 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 it gives you permission. If you think, oh, I have all these people at my back, you're going to be able to say things. And if you only get reinforced by people who want you to... And this, is, this has always been my theory about what happened to, like, Pat Buchanan is that he, he took great care for a long time and how he said things, but you could tell the dog whistle in it and he got criticism from people. And the only positive reinforcement he got was from people who said he didn't go far enough to the point where you basically, you know, caricatures work because they exaggerate real features and people become caricatures when they listen to their biggest fans too much. And they lean into those expectations all the time. And that's why so much of the right is run by caricatures these days. All right, I'm done ranting. Um, Yuval, I know you got to go. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. I'll see you at the office when I can friggin' get out of Gross City in the snow. Sounds great. Um, but thanks again for coming. Thank you. Okay, so uh, um, you've always left the studio, and um, I'm uh, about to leave my hotel in, in, in Grove City. Uh, thanks again to everybody who had me out there, uh, particularly Isaac Wallure, um, former dispatch intern and um, of the AI Council at Grove City. And um, I'll probably do something with the work I did on all that um, in written form uh, at some point. So we'll get to that. And maybe I'll talk more about the conservatism stuff in the, um, in the ruminant. Um, thanks to you all. Uh, uh, no idea what people are going to think about this one, but I find talking to you all extremely helpful for helping me think about the things I want to think about. Um, uh, not to be too grandiose about it, but he's an important part of my character formation. Um, and um, other than that, uh, let me know what you thought about the uh, conversation with Steve Hayes. Um, um, and... Uh, if you have other questions that we didn't answer that I'm capable of answering in a public fashion, um, I can do that on the ruminant as well. Some people 
um, have emailed me to say, oh, I wish I knew you were doing this. I would love to hear you guys t- talk about this, that, or the other thing. Um, if you want me to talk about this, that, or the other thing, let me know. And, um, and that's it. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>